Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today is Veterans Day, November 11, 2020. When I was looking at content for this week and topics to dive into, I was trying to decide, are we going to do something unique or special for Veterans Day, or is it just going to be another topic because we are going to talk about veterans um, no matter what? And there were a few ideas that I've been wanting to get into and, and or topics I've been wanting to cover, and I haven't been able to find a good way to get into that. There's not a real easy segue from a lot of these these stories into these couple topics. But then uh, a little while ago, a friend of mine, Jackson, made a recommendation on something to look into, and the timing just worked out really well. So he sent me a video about the last surviving World War I veteran. Is a gentleman that passed away, I believe a British gentleman that passed away a few years ago, and he was, again, the last surviving World War I veteran. We went back and forth a little bit and landed on the story of an American Frank Buckles. Frank Buckles passed away in 2011, and when he did, that marked the end of an era. Frank was the last surviving American veteran of the First World War. And Frank's story is what I'd like to talk about for the beginning of today's show, and then we're going to veer off a little bit. I think it's connected, or at least I'm going to try my best to connect it to another topic that I've been looking forward to getting into for quite a while. So Frank Buckles, when the United States entered the Second World War, he went to enlist. This was in 1917. He wanted to enlist and uh, and join the war effort. But the problem for Frank in 1917 is that he was 16 years old. All right, so this is something we're going to see well before – we'll see it definitely before the First World War. It feels like the line about your age to get into the military kind of comes to a close by Korea. You still see some instances in the fifties there in Korea, not nearly as common by Vietnam. Um, rare, I'd say is a better way to put it come Vietnam, but it happened quite a bit. World war one, world war two. And anyways, buckles is 16. When he goes to the recruiter, he goes to the Marine recruiter and they say, you're too small. He goes to the Navy recruiter and they say, you have flat feet. He goes to the army recruiter and they say, Where's your birth certificate? You have to have a birth certificate to enlist. And he said something along the lines of, it's in the family Bible back at home. And the officer, the captain, the army captain said, great, bring it in here and we'll get you signed up as long as it says, you know, you're 18. And Buckles made some comment about, you want me to go home and tell my parents that I have to take the family Bible and bring it in here for for you. And I guess that was was so ridiculous or the idea of doing that would have been... um, so crazy that the officer said, fine, signed him up on the spot. And before long, Buckles shipped off to Fort Riley, Kansas for basic training. Now, Buckles at 16 looks about 12. So I have no idea what this, this army captain is looking at or what he thought when this guy said he was 18 years old. There's no way he actually believed he was 18. But nonetheless, sends him off to basic training. And Buckles wants to get to the front into combat as soon as he can. So he asks what job is going to take to do that. And what they tell him is that of ambulance driver, which it's not crazy. 
If you think about the American involvement in the First World War, the fighting's already going on. So we're joining an active fight during World War I, which is a little bit different than what we'll see in parts of World War II and Korea and, and Vietnam. There's a, a stalemate stuck on the Western Front that we're joining. So if we show up in June, July, August, September, generally speaking, we're going to end up in the same trenches, fighting the same enemy, um, using the same tactics. So before they just before the allies, the French and the British and others just throw the Americans into the slaughter, there's going to be a level of training. They want to get the infantry units up to speed. They want to get the artillery units up to speed before they put them out there on the front line. And they have to learn those lessons the hard way, the way the French did in 1914 and the way the British did in 1914 when they lost tens of thousands of troops figuring out this new modern warfare. So if you're going to join the infantry, that might not be the fastest way to get to the front lines if that's your end goal. Because once you're in France, even, you're going to have to go through some level of, of training to get used to the, the tactics of now modern warfare. But if you're an ambulance driver, they are still needing ambulances. They still need these up relatively close to the front lines. And there's not a lot of, especially for the driver, you know, really you're moving from one location to another. There's more to it than that. I don't mean to downplay it, but you know, if you look at the trench systems in world war one, we tend to look at it very simply and say, it's a line on one side and a line on the other, but they're incredibly complex, especially as the war goes on. Now, early in the war, you're, you're just about talking one trench on each side because there was so much death above ground that people went down like any animal, any human being would do is get out of that. And over time, as these positions solidified, you would see, you know, your initial trenches, your, your frontline trenches that might just be used as observation or maybe to, to have folks prep before they went over the top to assault the other side. But then behind that, you might have a reserve trench. Behind that, maybe a supply trench. You know, that supply trench might have ammunition and medical supplies. And then you go back a few more layers, if you will, and then you get food is even further back. And then maybe a few more layers and you end up with a site kind of maybe hospital or a dentist or the headquarters. It's almost like waves of trenches. And that is really oversimplifying this. The, the challenge that we have during the first world war is that line is constantly shifting. It's not as though where everybody dug in in 1914, 15 and 16 stayed for the duration of the war, the line shift and as they solidify in certain areas, you go from just a dugout trench with a shovel to complex underground bunkers. So everyone is unique all up and down the front, depending on which military is there and depending on which year and depending on the status of the conflict in that sector, the trench systems change. But something that's relatively consistent is that on the medical side, you have stretcher bears up towards the front, like right on the front lines, going over the top with the men, moving out through no man's land to retrieve casualties and then bring them back some set amount of distance behind the front lines. And that's where you're going to start seeing the ambulances come in. So the no man's land, the, it, it's a mess. And there's very few areas where vehicles, especially like an ambulance, a wheeled vehicle is going to have success moving across that. So you have stretcher bears, usually two-man teams that are running out there, grabbing up a casualty, moving them back one at a time sometimes, usually one at a time, um, and then moving them to the appropriate 
area to get some level of treatment before they get into the ambulance to be moved towards a next level care facility. It might be a surgeon a few miles behind, um, but, but as much as they could, and this is true throughout warfare, right? You want to have your hospitals and where you're treating your wounded far enough back to where they're not at risk of being overrun because what's going to happen. Those that are, that are um, set up in the hospital might not have the ability to fight back, might not be able to retreat. So you want the hospital to be relatively back from the lines, but it's a thin line because you also need to have it close enough to get casualties there quickly enough to save their lives. So all of that to say, it's not crazy that if you said, I want to see frontline combat and I want to see it now, that somebody said, you know what? You drive an ambulance, you're going to be up there pretty quick. Again, Buckles wouldn't have, let me say that another way, an ambulance driver wouldn't have been up on the front, but it also wasn't uncommon for ambulance drivers to park and then have to help ferry casualties. Again, not necessarily through no man's land, but pretty close and definitely within shell range of the enemy. Now, Buckles goes to basic training at Fort Riley, Kansas, ships overseas um, in 1917, spends some time in England, and eventually gets to France. He's kind of frustrated. Remember, he said, I want to get out there. I want to fight. I want to be on the front lines as soon as possible. So a couple months in, in England is not what he's looking for. Gets to France, um, ends up as a uh, kind of guide or escort for an American dentist that's working on troops. He never ends up, well, the war ends, you know, why this is appropriate for Veterans Day. World War I ends with an armistice that went into effect at 11 a.m. on the 11th month of the 11th day, um, or the 11th day of the 11th month, November 11th, 1918, the armistice went into effect and the war, the war ended. Prior to that, Buckles did not get up the front lines. He didn't fulfill that goal of the, the eager 16 and 17 year old in their first conflict. Nonetheless, he stays overseas for a period of time, kind of helping with the war effort. Remember when these wars end, it's not as though everybody just drops their weapons and says, great, let's go on home. Buckles doesn't get home until 1919. Returns home in 1919, um, works a handful of jobs. And then in 1940, finds himself running an office for a shipping company in Manila. It's in the Philippines. 1940 is a tricky time um, for an American to be in Manila. And in December of 1941, Japanese forces land in the Philippines, quickly um, occupy the island and take many Americans, Buckles included, captive. For the next 39 months, Buckles will be in a prison camp before he is rescued. I believe it was in February of 1945. He'll return home um, before long, buys some property in West Virginia, begins to farm, settles down, raises a family, and really lives the rest of his life there in peace. For somebody who fought or you know was right there near the front um, as an ambulance driver or, or had the war not ended, Buckles would have been right in the mix of it during the First World War. And then to be taken prisoner for three years during the Second World War, it's a nice ending to the Frank Buckles story of that chapter of his life, maybe I'll say, to come home, settle in, buy a large tract of land in West Virginia, and kind of settle down with his family, raise a family. Buckles would live until the age of 110 when he passed away in 2011, February 27th, 2011. And when he did, like I mentioned earlier, that marked the end of an era. Buckles was the last surviving American veteran from the First World War.
So after 2011, we will never have the opportunity to sit down and ask for clarification on a picture with an American veteran of that war. We, and now that the, that all veterans have passed from the first world war, we won't ever be able to say one-on-one with somebody and actually hear it from somebody. What was it like? What was the shelling like at Verdun? What was it like going over the top of the Somme? Now we might have letters, we might have pictures, but you can't get any more clarification now. The first person accounts are done. What we have from the First World War is done. Sure, we're going to find things locked away in foot lockers and the pictures will resurface and something that was lost, we'll find it again. But, but there's no more clarification on that. Every, every new piece that we're documenting now, generally speaking, is going to be a secondhand account. It's going to be, well, my dad came back from the war and this is what he told me. Or this is what my grandfather told us when we were growing up. Now, we are starting to feel, you know, a little more than 100 years removed from the end of that war. It's easy to think of that as history. But this is going to sneak up. We're going to blink. And we'll be having conversations about the last paratrooper to jump in to Normandy on D-Day. Or the last living Marine that took Iwo Jima. And then before long the last American veteran of the Second World War. The same thing will happen with Korea and Vietnam. And although it doesn't feel like it today, there is going to come a point when we will be talking about the last surviving American veteran of the war in Iraq or the global war on terror or the last surviving Marine that fought in Helmand. That day will come. It might be a ways down the road, but it's going to be here. And with that, I'm going to transition to an ask. It's an ask of any veterans that are listening or that hear this. I ask that you document your experience. Share it. Make it available. Now, that doesn't mean you have to write a book or make a podcast or put out a video on the internet. You can write it down and shove it in your bookshelf or dictate it on your phone, save it in a file. You can type an email to yourself and and leave it in your draft file. Maybe you write it down with some pictures and put it in a footlocker in in your attic for your kids to find. It doesn't have to be a big public announcement, but somehow some way document your experiences. I say that for a couple of reasons. One, as just a fan of history, I can tell you that we, we have never looked back on a conflict and said, man, I wish we had fewer first person accounts. If only, if only fewer soldiers had written letters during Gettysburg, that would have been great. Or if, if fewer aviators flying over the Pacific had, had, told their stories when they came home, we'd have a better understanding. We are always, there's never enough information. We always want more. We want more pictures. We want more videos. We want more first person accounts. First person accounts are what people write books from. First person accounts is what gets pulled to, to tie together the history of our country, our military history. And if you were a veteran that served overseas in any capacity or just a veteran at all, you're a part of that military history. What you have to say Your experience on a three-month deployment, 
a six-month, nine-month, 12-month deployment, one time, 12 times, that can be used to help write America's military history. But I know that there's this, this clash that we have to deal with, and it's, it's due to this concept of the silent professional in the military, and I love it. I, personally speaking, those tend to be the people that I have the most respect for. Those are the leaders I, I like to follow. Those are the people that I look up to when you, when you find out, not because they were beating their chest and saying what they did, but you find out some other way, you know, a friend of a friend, or maybe you read about it online, you find out, holy cow, that guy's a warrior. And he doesn't brag about it. He doesn't talk down to people because of it. That's the, I love that. I love the silent professionalism. But it's a thin line that we have to figure out how to work with. Because on the one hand, that's a great thing. What a professional. But on the other hand, we are robbing others of that opportunity to know the story. And this is the second part of what I wanted to get into. It doesn't matter if you flew drones in Kandahar, if you were a cook in Helmand, if you were a tank mechanic in Tikrit, or a security guard in Baghdad, you have a unique story to tell. Your experiences are incredibly, incredibly unique. There's very few people who have gone through, no matter what that deployment was like, no matter what your combat experience was like, or if it wasn't even a combat experience, very few people have ever gone through that. That's a unique story. And as we sit here today in the middle of, you know, really still in the middle of this global war on terror in 2020, if you're in the military or you've been in the military, you know so many people who have done that. It feels like, how are you any different? I feel this way. I think, why would anybody ever want to hear what I did or my experience? This is a better way to say it. Have you heard of these people like Ty Carter or Clinton Romache? Or, or, you know, Dakota Meyer, I mean, these, these, or Paul Smith, like these, these warriors, these heroes that we have over the last 20 years, like those are stories, you know, make that movie. And, and they are to some degree, write those books. And they are, those are the incredible stories. Not, not what Lieutenant was doing in Southern Afghanistan in 2010. That's not exciting. Definitely not compared to that, but a few things, a few ways to look at that that I just I'd ask that we 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 consider. For one, move 50, 60, 70, 100 years down the road. And let's use World War II as an example. We'll go back 70 years, 80 years now. If a navigator on a bomber over Europe kept a daily journal and came home, and in 1946 walked, you know, pulled out his journal and said, I wrote every single day what I did during the war. It wouldn't have been that interesting. Do you know how many other people were navigators on bombers during the second world war? Join the club. We've got all these other incredible stories. We're still working through. Maybe you just had a normal average experience, but today imagine 80 years later, if somebody pulls out from their attic Maybe their grandfather passes away and they, they go through an old footlocker and find out that he kept a journal of every single day, every single mission that he flew 
over France and then over Germany. How valuable is that today? I mean, you, you could turn that into a book today because now not everybody has that experience and you have this detailed day-by-day accounting. That's awesome. Now, the second part of that, so, so think of that today. Think of, of your experiences as a, you know, an aircraft mechanic at Jalalabad. I got it. A lot of people did that. Or if you're a Marine infantryman walking around in Marja, I got it. A lot of people did that. Your deployment may not have been unique. You know a ton of other people who did that exact same thing. But a lot of other people aren't writing it down. A lot of other people aren't documenting those experiences. And when we get 50, 60, 70, 100 years down the road, your journal entry, your short email that you wrote to your wife and set it in the, the draft folder for, for down the road, God knows when, might be the best account of what happened. The second part is I ask that you consider documenting some of these things for your family. How many times have you heard my grandfather was a, my great grandfather was an artilleryman in the first world war or my grandfather served in the army during Korea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or you have the other side of it. It's sad when somebody says my uncle was in Vietnam, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know what unit he was in. I don't know what year he was there. I don't know what his job was. I think he was in the army. Your family wants to brag about you. Your children, your grandchildren are going to want to brag about what you did. Give them that opportunity. Give them the opportunity by documenting. It doesn't have to be a book. It can be a letter. It can be a few notes. It can be something to tell about your experience. So when your grandkids go to tell the story about their family history and they say, well, my great granddad, he fought in Kandahar. And he did A, B, C, D. You, they'll know your unit. They'll have pictures. They'll be able to tell your story, maybe why you joined, how long you were in, what was your rank, the name of your, you know, the name of your post, your platoon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Give, give your kids, give your grandkids the opportunity to brag about you because they're going to want to. Now, I understand that's a little bit at odds with the silent professional aspect of this. Maybe you put it away in a footlocker again, put it in the attic for people to find after you've passed away in 70, 80, 90 years, whatever it might be. But think about that. How cool will it be if your grandkids or great grandkids can look at your history, what you did and share that experience. And you can set that up today by just talking about it, talking to a phone, type an email, Write down, start taking a journal and just just document on a few pages what life was like in Bagram in 2006 or in Baghdad in 2010 or in Syria in 2014, whatever it might be. That's what I've got. That's my message for Veterans Day to, to all veterans. Just please consider documenting your experiences. It doesn't matter what your job was. It doesn't matter where you were and when you were. Don't look at all of the incredible incredible stories from some of our other veterans, your story is unique. And if 99.999% of the population, it means nothing to today, down the road, there are going to be people in your family or your friends where your story means the absolute world. Consider that.
consider writing something down, consider taking a few notes. But with that, happy Veterans Day. We'll talk again soon. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.